Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. First YouTube, now Twitter, a lawyer reads the new rules. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And this week is just social media and tech giants week here on Virtual Legality, as we've got another tech company changing a set of rules, trying to make them more streamlined in order to ostensibly better enforce them across uh, their application. In this case, Twitter and Twitter.com changed up their rules very recently. And I spoke about this a little bit in respect of the last video I did on virtual legality, which was about Carlos Maza, Steven Crowder, and YouTube dealing with how to enforce its own rules uh, in respect of that situation. And as we discussed on that video, One of the things that's happened, especially with tech companies, is that they have gone forward and changed their rules from something that admittedly is maybe a little bit too legal easy for people to really read and understand and comprehend what they mean, but they have taken them and they've changed them into plain English or simple English. They've streamlined them to try to be more approachable and look more friendly. And in so doing, one of the things that has happened is that they've introduced a great amount of ambiguity into what the rules actually say and into how the company may actually enforce them. And in that ambiguity, they have reserved for themselves a great deal of power. Because as we talked about in that video, as we've talked about on previous episodes of virtual legality, in the space that ambiguity creates, the party that's charged with ultimately determining what an ambiguous term means has all the power in that relationship. That was YouTube earlier this week. That was Sony when we were talking about their pattern of enforcement as to the content that can appear on their PlayStation 4 system. And today it's Twitter. So let's take a look at what they put out there yesterday. It says rules should be easy to understand. We heard you. Ours weren't. We updated, reordered, and shortened them. So you can know what's not allowed on Twitter. Click through this thread for all our rules and read our blog to learn more. And as soon as I saw that, I thought two things primarily. One, isn't it interesting that Google made this massive change on Wednesday and then Twitter made this massive change on Thursday and both at the very same time that the tech giants are essentially all under potential investigation for antitrust violations and these various things from various corners of both the executive branch and the legislative branch of the United States. And so it is always interesting when the tech giants tend to move together on these types of things. And I think they're all feeling the pressure and the heat uh, from these various government actions. So that's really apropos of nothing insofar as I think each side can absolutely independently decide to change their rules, change their terms and conditions. But it's probably not entirely a coincidence that they're both deciding to make these changes right now. I might strongly suspect if I were a betting man that we will see Facebook 
have a similar kind of statement very soon about what their policies are, about the content that appears on their system. But we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit there. And maybe we'll cover that on virtual legality if and when it does happen in the near future. But for now, we've got this Twitter statement. And so I looked at it and I said, all right, you want us to look at your rules? You want us to look at your blog? Let's absolutely do that because that's how we get the best information. It's not filtered through somebody else, although you are listening to it on virtual legality. But I'm going to link all this in the description, and I highly recommend on whatever we talk about that you take a look at the actual primary source materials that these people, these places, these corporations have put out there because that's the best way to understand what's actually happening. So this is a blog post from Twitter. It is dated today, actually, although I think it was yesterday, but maybe there's a change in the uh, the timing, uh, the time zone component there. And it says, making our rules easier to understand. Our rules exist to help keep everyone using Twitter safe and ensure they can participate freely in the public conversation. Over time, we've added new rules and updated existing ones, but these changes eventually made our rules confusing and difficult to understand. So today we're refreshing our rules with simple, clear language and reorganizing them into high-level categories, safety, privacy, and authenticity. We've also added detail around other policies, including election integrity, platform manipulation, and spam. Keep that in mind, because what we're going to look at is the way they introduced ambiguity here is very similar to the way that Google and YouTube have ambiguity in their terms and conditions. They've nested guidelines and policies and procedures that are different from and ostensibly relate to, but are also slightly their own set of rules, these main primary rules that they've put in this short document so that they can say that their rules are approachable and short, even though the actual teeth of the rule exist on a different website that you have to click through and potentially two or three other websites as we will see. We're gonna read the primary bullet point here and then we're gonna move on to actually look at what they did with their rules. What's new? We've gone from about 2,500 words to under 600. In 280 characters or less, each rule clearly describes exactly what is not allowed on Twitter. So you've got two things here. One, you've got them crowing about how short their rules are, which admittedly can be good for people to understand. Shortness can be good. That's not what we're saying here. We're saying that it introduces ambiguity. Second sentence here is actually a marketing statement, right? So they say in 280 characters or less, which is the amount of characters that you can put in a single tweet, each rule clearly describes exactly what is not allowed on Twitter. So this is basically designed to say, hey, our rules are so simple and easy to understand, we can fit them in a single tweet. And as a lawyer, I look at that and say, that's nice, but that might not be the best way to communicate what the actual bright lines that someone shouldn't violate on your service are. And that's why the way they've structured this actually is these very short statements that are ambiguous in and of themselves and then links to these longer, stronger policies. So here we've got the Twitter rules document, and it says Twitter's purpose is to serve the public conversation, violence, harassment, and other similar types of behavior, discourage people from expressing themselves, and ultimately diminish the value of global public conversation. Our rules are to ensure all people can participate in the public conversation freely and safely. I don't know that anybody that's on Twitter, that's on social media, could disagree with the overall thrust of that statement. But as is the case in most laws, most terms and conditions, it's always tricky when the rubber hits the road. So let's take a look at just a few of their actual rules. We're not going to have time on this virtual legality to go over each and every policy that they've put in here, because although these are 280 characters or less, the actual teeth of these rules are much, much longer. So let's just start at the top. We're talking about safety. They've got the three pillars, safety, privacy, and authenticity. 
And the first one is violence. You may not threaten violence against an, an individual or a group of people. Okay. We also prohibit the glorification of violence. Learn more about our violent threat and glorification of violence policies. So that's the overall rule. You may not threaten violence against an individual or a group of people. That makes sense, but let's click through to see what that rule actually says, how it will be enforced. And then we see they've got a violent threats policy, which is a great deal longer than 600 words and is a great deal longer than 280 characters. It says, healthy conversation is only possible when people feel safe from abuse and don't resort to using violent language. For this reason, we have a policy against threatening violence on Twitter. We define violent threats as statements of an intent to kill or inflict serious physical harm on a specific person or group of people. Well, see, that's interesting, right? So here's the actual definition that you need to understand the main rule. Most people, I would argue, are probably not going to get past that front page of rules if they get there at all, which is its own problem. But this has been designed to essentially make these clear rules that say you can't have violent threats and then say, oh, by the way, we define violent threats as a statement of an intent to kill or inflict serious physical harm. If you're following along with virtual legality, if you're used to me parsing out contracts and terms and conditions now, you know one of the things I'm going to say here is, ah, okay, that sentence says violent threats are only ones that relate to killing or serious physical harm. Everything else in the space of things that are less than serious physical harm is allowed. You're allowed to say maybe that you want to punch somebody. You're allowed to say that you maybe want to throw a milkshake on someone. You're allowed to say these things that are unlikely to be interpreted as inflicting serious physical harm. And although in the dictionary, in Black's Law Dictionary or just the normal dictionary, violence will be defined as something that just kind of interferes with the physical well-being of someone else, here violence, even though it's said in broad language up at the top to be interpreted as one might imagine to be all things that relate to physical harm, they've defined it to only mean serious physical harm. And that makes some sense to a corporation that's trying to make sure that they don't have to take down essentially half of the tweets that are on their system. But it doesn't make as much sense to someone that's just reading the top line rules. And that's really the purpose of this video is to talk about how these companies operate, how terms and conditions and ambiguities exist to allow them to decide how they're going to enforce something. So if somebody says they want to punch something, if somebody says they want to throw milkshakes on somebody, Twitter can go to that top line rule and say, hey, that's a violent threat. That's not allowed. If, however, they want to say, hey, we don't want to do anything about that tweet, they can go one level deeper and look at the policy and say, hey, we defined it to only mean serious physical harm. Because they've reserved this right to themselves, that gives them a great deal of discretion to operate technically within the meanings of their rules, but also giving them uh, the ability to say, hey, context demands that we do X or that we do Y. And that's always going to be a problem for people that are operating on another person's service, on another person's server or uh, application. And I want to take a step back just from that alone to talk about what I talk about in the start of the video that I did earlier this week on YouTube. This isn't me sitting here saying as a lawyer that Twitter is not permitted to do this. This isn't me saying earlier in the week that YouTube isn't permitted to do this. Outside of very kind of broad prescriptions on doing things against protected classes in very specific ways, these corporations have the right to set the license terms and your ability to use their service as they see fit. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we can comment on what they have done, how they are actually enforcing their rules and regulations, and whether or not that's acceptable, whether or not that's something that we should all be okay with. That is, to me, very distinct from asking for a, a legal remedy, asking for something bad to happen to the corporation in and of itself, 
but we can still complain about it. Just like we complain about uh, video games or the plot of our favorite television show. It's still worthwhile to do, even if we think that legally they have the right to do these things. That's kind of the overall thrust of this policy is serious physical harm and, and things that are threats to kill. What is not a violation of this policy? So we go a little bit deeper here. They say, hey, we recognize that some people use violent language as part of hyperbolic speech or between friends. Uh, and we don't want to do anything about that. So we're going to check these things out. And if they're reported, we're going to evaluate whether or not they're a violation of our policies. Okay, that seems fair. Obviously, people interact in very different ways. Language is a tough thing. Honestly, all of this is a tough thing for Twitter to deal with. But when we get to the bottom of this policy, which in and of itself is longer than all the rules that they've put forth at the top line level, the question becomes, what happens if you violate this policy? And it says, in rare cases, we may not suspend an account immediately. Again, we're talking about things that are interpreted as violent threats. For example, if the reported content is a form of hyperbolic speech, which we just read, they have admitted is not a violation of their policies. In such cases, we may require you to remove this content. Okay, that's interesting. I don't understand how these things all work together as a lawyer, let alone as a layperson trying to understand these rules. You just said that hyperbolic speech is allowed because it's not a violation of your policy. Then you say, okay, but we can evaluate that, understand it's hyperbolic speech, and still essentially treat it as a kind of violation and ask you to remove it. Okay, that's fine. It's your system, it's your servers, it's your application. But let's not pretend that any of this is bright line rules and that any of this exists outside of whatever content uh, context you want to deem is applicable to this specific set of situations. And that's where I think the rubber does hit the road, is that everything here that we wind up reading when we're looking at these policies can be interpreted as Twitter just looking at context and deciding what's an exception and what's not. Here we've got the glorification of violence policy. I think a lot of reasonable minds can agree. We don't necessarily want to glorify violence. If Twitter wants to ban that, prohibit that, seek to stamp that out. That makes a lot of sense. And they say in the bright line rule, we also prohibit the glorification of violence. Okay. Glorifying violent acts could inspire others to take part in similar acts of violence. Additionally, glorifying violent events where people were targeted on the basis of their protected characteristics, which they label as race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. And we'll note as a lawyer that they actually frame that as an including, which implies that there's a longer list that they could apply at their discretion, that against those protected characteristics, it could incite or lead to further violence motivated by hatred and intolerance against those protected characteristics, one would presume. But remember that list of characteristics when we go down a little bit further. It says, what is in violation of this policy? You can't glorify, celebrate, praise, or condone violent crimes, violent events where people were targeted because of their membership in a protected group, or the perpetrators of such acts. Now, we've got a reference here to violent crimes. Do you think that that applies only to violent crimes that can kill somebody or that impose serious harm? Or does that apply to what we would consider the general definition of violent crimes? A standard assault that probably can't kill someone. A standard battery. Throwing a milkshake on someone. Punching someone in the face. Does that apply here? Is that something that you can't glorify? We're getting into some dicey territory here. And you can see how by doing the rules that they did, by putting it out as simple and easy to understand, they now have policies which are nested underneath those rules which may come into conflict. 
In this policy, we don't have a definition of what it means by violence. Unlike the, the fact that we do have a de definition of what it means by violence when it's saying you can't espouse a violent activity yourself. So we have this kind of cross definition. And if I'm a lawyer, if I'm looking at this in a contract that I'm negotiating, I start to have real problems with how this thing is set up. Then we get to what is not a violation of this policy. And you see an exception, which is very interesting. Exceptions may be made for violent acts by state actors, governments, countries, where violence was not primarily targeting protected groups. Okay, what is Twitter trying to get at here? You think about it and you say, okay, they want to say you're allowed to make statements that espouse probably the virtues of your own country and the actions that they've taken in war or otherwise to defend themselves or heck, to, to, to make an aggressive action against a, uh, an opponent on the battlefield, something along those lines. But where it really becomes interesting to me and where it really highlights the areas where they haven't thought about how their language all works together is they don't want to allow you to espouse these things, even by governments, if the violence was primarily targeting a protected group. That makes sense on its initial kind of thought process. You don't want to have things that are targeting these protected groups. They're important. They're protected classes for a reason, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't make a lot of sense in this context, because if we look at the protected characteristics, they include, in particular, ethnicity and national origin. And so what are most things that a state actor is going to be doing when they're doing violent things? It's going to be acts of war. For the most part, they're not indiscriminate acts of war. They're going to be targeting a country or a country's government. And by its very nature, just from a kind of logical standpoint, that's mostly going to be affecting people of a specific national origin. And so you get into these vague areas. And I'm not saying anybody should be espousing anything particular in and of these things at all. But if you make these exceptions and you then define them in such a way, you really have to be careful about how you define them. It's also worth noting that this exception lives entirely in the policy. It lives entirely in that nested framework underneath the main rule. They say we also prohibit the glorification of violence. Full stop, period. That's it. And then everything else that kind of gives contours to that lives underneath it in this page. I'm going to go over only a couple more of these because I think you get the idea on this ambiguity. They ban abuse and harassment and hateful conduct. And I wanted to look at those just really briefly because I think those are the things that are most likely to come up on Twitter. I don't think most everyday Twitter users are running up against the terrorism and violent extremism bans against the child sexual exploitation bans. Instead, I think we're basically looking at Twitter enforcing a lot of rules on abuse and on harassment, etc. So they say the bright line rule is, and I apologize, it's back here. The bright line rule for abusive behavior is you may not engage in the targeted harassment of someone or incite other people to do so. This includes wishing or hoping that someone experiences physical harm. That's the bright line rule. And we go forward to their rationale. It says, we prohibit behavior that harasses or intimidates or is otherwise intended to shame or degrade others. And again, it's important when we're looking at this language, when we think about it as a lawyer, as about someone that's looking at how this might be enforced, the main way that this is written is based on how it is perceived by the person to whom the communication is directed. The person whom is receiving the communication gets to decide, in general, whether they're harassed or intimidated versus if there's going to be shame or degradation, that has to be based on an intent. And I don't know that they're being that careful with this language, but that's how we would ordinarily parse it out when we're trying to evaluate the rules that they set forth. So 
it's important to make those distinctions when you're trying to understand as a user of one of these services what you can and can't do. And I understand if you're listening to this virtual legality, if you're watching this on YouTube or you're listening to it as a podcast, you look at this and you say, hey, Rick, I don't want to do any of this stuff. This is all bad stuff. This is all pretty close to the line. I don't want to intimidate anyone. I don't want to harass anyone. I don't want to make violent threats. Of course, absolutely. That's why we have to have this discussion because it's very easy when we're talking about all these bad things to look at it and say, hey, Twitter's trying to keep all the bad stuff off. They can do what they want. That's where the abuse happens. That's where these companies can take a little bit more discretion than they might otherwise when you can frame everybody as somebody doing something bad. And that's really what I want to get out there is a discussion of what is bad, what is something that should be allowed on the service is up to Twitter, but not, it shouldn't be the case that they get to decide on an ad hoc basis. On Monday, it's this. On Tuesday, it's that. And that's really what they have been doing. That's one of the reasons they're under investigation. And a lot of people are talking about the way they operate their service. It's one of the reasons they've done this with the rules right now. But unfortunately, I think they've actually made it significantly worse for themselves as to how they're like one can look at it in an episode like virtual legality, but maybe better in the long run if they can get away with it because they do have this very high level of discretion. Then we get to talking about aggressive insults. They say you can't make aggressive insults. We take action against excessively aggressive insults that target an individual, including content that contains slurs or similar language. So we break down that sentence because they say including slurs or similar language. That means that there are places that they can act on an insult that don't include slurs. So you don't have to slur someone. You don't have to actually go with the bad words in order to get a Twitter warning or suspension or something along those lines. We can take action against excessively aggressive insults. I look at this as a lawyer and I say, hey, all right, the word excessively is interesting there. What does that mean? Well, you won't find a definition of excessively anywhere in this policy. It's up to Twitter to determine what's an okay amount of aggression in your insults and what's an excessive amount of aggression in your insults. Then they reserve a little bit more of rights to themselves. They say, please also note that while some individuals may find certain terms to be offensive, we will not take action against every instance where insulting terms are used. In other words, hey, we understand we're going to take action in certain respects. You're going to see we took action. And then you're going to say, hey, that person over there said the same thing to me. Why didn't you do anything about that? And they're going to say, hey, we don't have to. We've reserved the right to have complete discretion over this kind of thing. And we will decide what we're going to do. And that is another area in which ambiguity is used by Twitter and by YouTube and by Facebook to allow themselves this greater sense of power. And I think it's useful for everybody to understand that. Twitter's still a great thing. I enjoy my time on Twitter a lot. YouTube's a great thing. This is a video on YouTube. I also meet up with my friends and family on Facebook, but that doesn't mean that we have to be okay with the rules that they've put forth. And it certainly means that we should better understand all of us as consumers, how little power we have over the process that these companies decide to use in their social media and whether or not we should be looking for alternatives or seeking to have them change their rules, change their terms and conditions to better establish bright lines that we might all understand how we can meet. But you can see how this all operates. The last couple things I wanted to talk about in particular was with respect to platform manipulation and election integrity. So now we're talking about authenticity. I looked at the privacy sections and they mostly seem to do what they say on the tin. They mostly seem to make sense from the top line level through the policies. Uh, But there are these differences of ambiguity that you see all across this setup. In authenticity, however, you have a major difference. You see platform manipulation and spam. You may not use Twitter's services in a manner intended to artificially amplify or suppress information 
or engage in behavior that manipulates or disrupts people's experience on Twitter. So many, so many words there that require definition if we're looking at this as a legal contract. You may not use Twitter services in a manner intended to artificially amplify. What does artificially mean? Or suppress information or engage in behavior that manipulates or disrupts people's experiences on Twitter. What does manipulate mean? Is it manipulative if I convince somebody of a different position? Is it manipulative if I uh, give them inaccuracies and convince them of something by lying to them? That's very unclear just from the top line rules. And we go in and we look at the policy and it's actually pretty normal. There's not a lot to object to here. What they're mostly talking about is you can't mislead others on Twitter by operating fake accounts. You can't artificially amplify conversations through the use of multiple accounts. You can't artificially inflate your own or others' followers or engagement by selling them or by buying them or by getting into follow trains or things like that. And you can't misuse Twitter's product features uh, to make other people's lives miserable. You can't use bulk direct messages. You can't do those kinds of things. All of these rules are fairly normal, and they are what I would expect someone that is doing a good job of trying to make sure that their service is useful and functional for their customers to look like. As you'll note, when you look at this, though, it's hundreds and hundreds of words long. This is where the actual rules for this live, not in this really, really short Twitter rules section. And so we're left trying to evaluate these very short rules on a basis that doesn't make any sense. You basically have to click on learn more to understand what they're even trying to say. Same thing goes for election integrity. You may not use Twitter's services for the purpose of manipulating or interfering in elections. Okay, just on its face, if you're at all interested in politics or the political process, what does manipulating or interfering with means? If I'm on a Twitter board and I'm talking to people and trying to tell them that candidate X is better than candidate Y because candidate Y does all sorts of bad things, am I manipulating or interfering in elections? That sounds to me of the democratic process. I'm trying to talk to people about why their proposed candidate might be bad, why mine might be good, et cetera, et cetera. But in a dictionary definition kind of sense, it is clearly manipulating or interfering in the elections. And so we actually have to click through to determine what it is that they're talking about, which is a little bit better stated. It makes a little bit more sense. They say we prohibit attempts to use our services to manipulate or disrupt elections, including through the distribution of false or misleading information about the electoral process or when or how to vote. So it says, what is in violation of this policy? We prohibit three categories of manipulative behavior. So the overall rule says we prohibit all uses of manipulating or interfering in elections. It doesn't say a number at all. You may not use for the purpose of manipulating. Then you have to go into this site to say, actually, we prohibit three categories. You can't mislead information about how to participate. You can't disseminate that information. You can't tell people that the polling place is over here when it's actually over there. You can't look to suppress voters. You can't tell them that uh, law enforcement is looking for people with tickets that are owed at the polling place. Don't go there, et cetera, et cetera. And you can't use a false affiliation. You can't say you're the opposite of what you actually are. You have to disclose certain uh, things about your political party and, and what you're talking about uh, if you are affiliated with the candidate, et cetera, et cetera. Interestingly enough, what is not a violation of this policy not all false or untrue information about politics or political events constitutes manipulation or interference in an election. That's a heck of a sentence. Not all false or untrue information. So even stuff that is false, presumably stuff that is knowingly false that someone's disseminating, do not constitute manipulation. Where is that line drawn? That's a tricky thing for Twitter to solve. 
in the absence of other violations, the following are generally not in violation of this policy. Before we even get to that, look at it saying in the absence of other violations and the following are generally not. That reserves all that ambiguity. That reserves all that discretion to Twitter because A, if something is generally not in violation, that means it's sometimes in violation and that's up to Twitter. And in the absence of other violations, hey, did you do something else? We have this long list of things that we could put on you. Maybe this is something that we could add to an enforcement action that we want to use against you. But note the very first bullet that is generally not in violation of the policy. Inaccurate statements about an elected official, candidate, or political party. We are not saying that use of Twitter constitutes manipulation or interference in an election if you go out and you knowingly lie about an elected official position, candidate, or political party. Period. Wow. Okay, that's almost the opposite of what I would have anticipated when I saw the overall rule about what is a violation. And again, we've got this dichotomy between the rule and the policy. And if I'm Twitter, I can probably enforce a violation of either side of the coin. I can probably enforce a violation if it only violates the top line rule. I can probably enforce a violation if it only violates the policy, the the lower end rule. And it's up to me because, hey, the following are generally not in violation. Then we get to the next bullet point. It talks about organic content that is polarizing, biased, hyperpartisan, or contains controversial viewpoints expressed about elections or politics. I looked at this. One does wonder what happened to just the normal word partisan. I don't know why everything that is partisan is always hyperpartisan, but that's really a question for the rhetorical folks that look at uh, the news items and the political pages of the various journals and whatnot. But note the word organic. They're using that to distinguish, I believe, against artificial, but they don't define organic. They don't define artificial. We could probably use the definition for artificial that they were using when they were talking about manipulating Twitter to mean, hey, false accounts, triple accounts, things of that nature. But it's not at all clear in this policy. So we're left looking at organic content to mean, okay, you mean authentic. You mean stuff that I actually believe. I'm allowed to say things I actually believe, even if they're ridiculous. And that makes some amount of sense. But who gets to decide whether they're organic or not? Can Twitter just look at what I've said and decide it's not organic because I'm too closely aligned with politician X or with just information source Y, so it must not be organic? These are the types of things. These are the type of ambiguities that Twitter reserves for itself. And that applies across the political spectrum. That applies to Republicans and Democrats alike. It's just that with the high level of discretion, chances are you will wind up seeing where Twitter stands on various things because they've reserved for themselves the right to do these things, to enforce however they like. And that's why the rules aren't terribly useful. That's why, although they say that they're easier to understand because they are so short, because they are under 280 characters a piece, that they are better for people, that's why I stand against these kinds of things. I'm a lawyer, yes. I read contracts all the time. I read terms and conditions all the time. So yes, it's a little bit easier for me to understand what one of these things is saying, what the language that is put in a document like this is trying to achieve. But when you take these things down this path, when, like most of the tech companies, you try to make things simpler, you try to make things more approachable for everybody involved, I think if you want to give them the absolute benefit of the doubt, which, hey, you absolutely can, Even if you give them that benefit of the doubt, you have to understand that this gives them a great deal more power than the bright line rules. Then being able to point to a rule that is a little bit legal easy and say, hey, you violated it because you can read this sentence and you understand that a violation occurred. Instead, we go to short form rules and then long form policies behind those rules. 
and then even a third level of policy that actually exists underneath everything else that we've read today, which is that they have an approach to policy development and enforcement philosophy that basically puts above all else context. When it comes to enforcing this rules, we are committed to being fair. We will enforce our rules impartially and consistently, but considering the context involved. And you see context come up all across this philosophy. Thus, context matters. Context matters is in bold. When determining whether to take enforcement action, we may consider a number of factors, including, but not limited to, we're going to put bullet points here, but don't hold us to these because there could be 16 more bullet points that we don't have to say here because we don't know what kind of context we're going to need to depend on in the future. And again, I'm a corporate lawyer. This makes a ton of sense from the corporation's side of things, and I'm not begrudging them their ability to do this, but I think it's important for people to know what's happening. And in the context matters section, they say it matters whether the behavior is directed at an individual group or protected category of people. You aim this at somebody particular, then we're more likely to do an enforcement action. One would imagine. They don't actually frame it that way in this policy. The report has been filed by the target of the abuse or a bystander. Again, we can assume that somebody that's an actual target is going to get a more likely enforcement action against their aggressor than a mere bystander. But again, they don't actually make that distinction. They could decide, hey, it's the exact opposite. Bystanders are more important. The user has a history of violating our policies. The severity of the violation, as determined by Twitter, the content may be a topic of legitimate public interest. When we get to the content may be a topic of legitimate public interest, you start to see how they try to allow perhaps uh, more uh, aggressive tweets from people that are higher up, that are more important. It certainly has the same kind of ring to it as a too big to fail concept. They have here under their public impact of the content provision, a topic of legitimate public interest is different from a topic in which the public may be curious. We will consider what the impact is to citizens if they do not know about this content. If the tweet does have the potential to impact the lives of large numbers of people, the running of a country and or it speaks to an important societal issue, then we may allow the content to remain on the service. Likewise, if the impact on the public is minimal, we will most likely remove content in violation of our policies. So we've got this set of policies. If you are in violation, we get to determine whether there's a legitimate public interest. And by the way, just because you're curious about something doesn't mean it's a legitimate public interest. All as determined in the board of directors room or the officers hallways of Twitter. We will then consider what the impact is to citizens if they don't know this content. Hey, maybe it's better if you don't know it. Maybe it won't impact you at all. And if it does have the potential to impact the lives of large numbers of people, the running of a country, and or it speaks to an important societal issue, then we may allow it. We won't necessarily allow it. It will be up to us again. So you see here, and this goes throughout the entire policy, but you can see just even as a non-lawyer, how many mays there are how many determinations are built into the assumptions in the sentences. And again, I want to say, I don't know that that's necessarily wrong, but it is important to understand if you're using Twitter all the time, if you're trying to make a business by selling things to people, by connecting with people, by building a network on Twitter, just like we talked about in my YouTube video, it's important to understand that you are doing it at the largesse, at the beneficence of these corporations that can change their rules on a dime, like Twitter did yesterday, that can change their policies beneath those rules on a dime, and then they can enforce those rules and those policies in a way that you might not like, and in a way that maybe doesn't immediately make sense, certainly if you're only reading what the actual rules that they have put forth 
in front of you are and maybe not the policies or not their approach to policy development and enforcement philosophy page. All of this is nested and nested and nested and not likely for anybody that's reading Twitter to actually dive deep into unless you're following things like virtual legality. Uh, and that's really been virtual legality for today. Uh, I thank you very much for watching. If you like this video, please do like, uh, please subscribe to the channel, uh, and please do let other people know about its existence. We have a lot of fun here a lot of the time. We talk about a lot of these issues, some of which kind of talk about broader issues in the tech space like we did today, some of which talk about things that are only related to video games or pop culture. We talk about Game of Thrones and Avengers and the information technology space. Uh, and if you caught this on a podcast, we do this on a podcast service as well. Please do review it on the podcast service you're listening to it on. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the next episode of Virtual Legality. <laughs>